0: would you open God's precious holy word to Luke chapter 16 and we are in verses 14 through 18 today and I want to bring you a message from that passage that I call absolute truth it is in the same Line of discourse where just last time we saw how Christ was then addressing his disciples. He he talked about the man who many call the unjust steward. But Christ was emphasizing the importance of, of investing your life in whatever God gives to you that you might be a good steward and invest invest your life in the things that God gives you into eternity, into the kingdom. That's how it follows you into the kingdom. Then he closed it with saying that that nobody could serve God and worldly possessions. So the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees were there, of course, listening in. Christ was not talking to them. He was talking to his disciples. But they're going to enter in to the overall conversation. So let's look at it here. And first of all, ask the question which was the question that had to be answered... At this point in time, by those who were there, who speaks for God? The Pharisees in the previous months had come hard against Jesus. You remember just in a few verses previous, they said, man, this guy, he hangs around with sinners all the time. He eats with them. Sinners. This became a basis for their argument. And the crux of their argument is, based on what he's doing and what he's saying, he's of the devil. He has no respect for the law. Now, of course, the absolute opposite is true, and it becomes clearer here in this passage of Scripture. Christ was clearly focused on the law, not on legalism. Now, legalism takes the word of God, and then it adds something to it such that those who would add to it as legalists would seek to then impose that upon other people as an equal thing to the law. Why is legalism? So then the question, who speaks for God at that juncture in in history, at, at that time in the in the Bible story has to be answered by those in the immediate presence. Are the Pharisees speaking for God with their traditionalism and their legalism and their salvation by works and their, their additions to the law, their, their, their additions to the scriptures and their interpretation of the scriptures. Are they speaking for God or as Jesus speaking for God. Jesus, of course, is not denying the law. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus brings the law in that day to its correct standard in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, Jesus says, if you harbor hatred in your heart, you're committing murder. You may not actually stab the guy to death or hit him over the head with a rock when he's not looking. You may not actually commit the act of murder, but you're a murderer because of hatred in your heart. Just to gaze upon a woman in lust is to commit adultery. You may have never taken her to the bedchamber, but you don't have to do that because the fact that the thought races through your mind makes you an adulterer. It's who you are in the essence of your existence. What Christ is saying, what Christ is saying is this. You have a fallen nature that must be redeemed. You can't stand in the presence of God on the basis of His law, knowing that His law not only strikes at the behavior of humanity, But at the very essence, the thought process, the mindset, the depravity of human nature. So Christ actually raises the law to the place, to the standard where it's supposed to be. It attacks human nature. And a human being cannot do a thing in and of himself to satisfy the law. Can't do it. This is the whole message of Christ which is, of course, the message of grace. Now, the Pharisees were using as their example the fact that Jesus was surrounded with and enjoyed fellowshipping with, quote, sinners, close quote. On Christ's side, this was not proof that He had relaxed the law, It was proof that no one can stand in the presence of God except by the grace of God. Something has to intervene from God that we can't provide for ourselves. And this is where it's all headed, of course, to the cross. Now, who speaks for God? The Pharisees, by this time in the gospel story of Luke, by this time... As I've said earlier, the multitudes were beginning to fall away from Jesus. And the Pharisees had done a good job of intimidating them and of convincing the people that Christ had relaxed the law, that he was teaching something else besides what God had intended man to hear. Of course, this is God in the the flesh. And as I've told you earlier, when they called him Satan and they said that he worked by the power of Satan, that that was the final line. And Jesus then went on the attack against the Pharisees. So so there's, there's not just hostility, there's anger, and then it becomes conspiracy, and finally it ends in the death of Christ. When the Pharisees and others of religious leadership in Judaism would do something that otherwise they would condemn, namely to compromise themselves with the Roman civil leadership and together bring charges against Jesus, even to the point that they would hire false false accusers to bring false charges. That's where it ends. So then, who speaks for God? The false teacher who adds to the scriptures and lays upon you a burden that no one, that no one can carry. Perfect obedience to the law from the time you're born until the time you die. You, 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 you never want, you never covet something that belongs to somebody else all of your life. Not even as a child. This kid has a toy. You want the toy? I want that. I wish I had that. I wish that was mine. You broke. The, you don't have to break it, but once to be a lawbreaker, disobey your parents, bear false witness, even when you don't realize you're bearing false witness, just to carry along a tale of gossip or whatever. There are multitudinous ways in every day that every single human being, even the best of us, falls short of obeying the law, and this, of course. This, this, this self-righteousness had reached its pinnacle in Judaism in the days of the Pharisees. And that was the day, of course, when Jesus came to minister. This was the greatest day to make the contrast between law, so-called, and grace. So who speaks for God? Well, this is an important question that everybody has to answer. False religion? Legalism? Writings that are addendum to Scripture? Or the Son of God? Who speaks for God? So let's look at it. Now all of the Pharisees being lovers of silver. Now the word up there, lovers of silver, uh, the word is a different word from lovers of mammon or to love mammon. Mammon is a more general term that would include silver, but silver is an exclusive term in verse 14. They wanted silver. The Pharisees wanted a bag full of coinage. This is what they wanted. They knew with silver they could just get anything. So they were lovers of silver. Jesus knows this. Now all of the Pharisees, being lovers of silver, were listening. Now Jesus was teaching his disciples, but they were listening. They were listening to these things, and they were ridiculing him. They were mocking him. They were sneering at him. You know the kind of people that I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they they were just hostile in their attitude and arrogant, sarcastic, beyond imagination toward the teachings of Jesus and these things that that Jesus was teaching so here they are, he's talking to the side. You got, these, you got these, these Pharisee jerks out here that are doing their stuff. He just stops, all right? Now he turns to the Pharisees. And he said to them, you are those justifying themselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination before God. Turning away from his disciples, if he had been kneeling, standing up perhaps, looking straight into the eyes and the faces of the Pharisees. You have only this interest in religion, that other people might think of you as somebody special and holy. You justify yourselves before men, but you're evil in your heart. And God knows this. This is Jesus now. God knows your hearts. The things that you have created and you have somehow duped people into believing, the thing that highly esteems men before men is an abomination before God because it's a man-made thing. It's a man seeking to impress other people rather than being on the right basis before God. It is a man demanding and getting other people to agree that because of my behavior, because of the life that I live and because of what I tell you I've done, and because of the clothes that I wear that ought to make you realize that I am a holy person, on this basis I demand to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's that's where they were. Now, the people who understood that were the so-called sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, those people who had lived such shameful lives but now Christ is teaching them something that they they sensed in their hearts all along that while they were evil in this way the pharisees were also evil in their own way and the religious person is the hardest person to bring the gospel to if i remember the word abomination it's a, an abomination before God. In other words, Christ is saying, you, your teaching, your attitude, your religion, all an abomination before God. Now that, that puts it on the level of idolatry and, and all of those um, All of those perverted sexual things back in Leviticus that the Canaanites did. God said it's an abomination, abomination. All the worst stuff among humanity. Here, they are placed on that same level. You're an abomination to God. That's what he says to the Pharisees. They... I'll tell you this if you add to the Word of God and live your life religiously just to impress other people, that other people may give you accolades and praise, if that is the basis of your religion, if you deny the absolute gospel of Jesus Christ and pervert the Word of God in any way that you might justify yourself, yourself, yourself before men, that you might look good and somewhere along the way that you might make money you're an enemy of God an enemy of God to despise the gospel of grace makes you an enemy of God Christ is saying this to these Pharisees who then speaks for God This is what the people are going to have to answer in their hearts. Now Christ carries the Pharisees into an arena that they may not have realized at the moment, but it is was an arena that they really didn't want to go into. Absolute infallibility of the word of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Now you and I could say that means the Old Testament and the Old Testament way. What was the Old Testament way? Well, the law was given from God to reveal the character of God, to reveal the fallenness of man, And to present to humanity a standard, a moral code that we really should try our best to keep. There's nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, I would advise it. I I wouldn't advise it. I would just tell you this is what God says. You should do your best to keep the Ten Commandments. Always remembering that there are things that you can't do. That there's a There's a boundary in your life. But we we later learned that the law also is a schoolmaster to teach us that we need Jesus, that we need a Savior. We need someone who will take the punishment in our stead, the punishment for breaking the law. It's always death. We need a substitute in our behalf. We need atonement. And then we need justification. So we need it such that when God looks at us, He sees Jesus. And when God looks at Jesus with regard to Christ on the cross, He sees us. And there's substitution, atonement, and justification. And God declares that we are covered with the righteousness of Christ because we have faith in him. He died for me on the cross. I believe that. I don't doubt it at all. He died for me. I am that shameful thing that Christ absorbed into himself and took it to the cross. That's me. And I deserve all of this. But I've escaped it, I've been excused, I've been pardoned, I've been justified. Someone who was innocent took upon himself my guilt and passed on to me his innocence. Thus he died for me. Now, the law and the prophets proclaiming the law, the Ten Commandments, and then, through ritual and sacrifice, explaining that God would accept a substitute to provide atonement, and at the end of it all, give justification to the sinner. So, in all of those years, all of those lambs and bullocks and turtle doves, the blood that was spilled, worshipers who took the place of a guilty sinner knowing that they could not obey the law. And they were looking forward to the day of the prophet and the seed of woman and as he was developed all the way through the scripture, finally, the, the Bethlehemite, the one of Judah, the king of all kings, this was their way of looking forward, and they expressed that. This was the law and the prophets, and the prophets were prophesying someday he's coming. Born of a virgin, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, he's coming someday. So they took into their lives in that Old Testament time, the law and the prophets, knowing that someday the great atonement would come, that God would provide it for himself and be satisfied, Isaiah 53. God would look upon him and be satisfied. They knew that. This was the Old Testament. So this was how it was preached Until John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the end of the Old Testament, essentially. He has a unique role, a unique calling, a unique office in the Bible to be the harbinger of the Christ, to be the forerunner of Jesus. He's the only one. So Jesus says, it was the Old Testament and the Old Testament way until John. And now John begins to preach more clearly about the kingdom and about the need for repentance. And to make people understand that the Lamb of God was just around the corner. And we are not ready to receive him. Repent. And they did. So, John transitioned into that time such that since then, the kingdom of God is proclaimed. And everyone violently forces his way into it. Christ provided miracles, healing, and such they longed to be in his presence from the whisper to a shout it became reported that he is the king of the kingdom and so in their own way they pressed violently to become into the present to come into the presence of Jesus so that they might find their way into that kingdom. You know, I go back, this is in the 84th Psalm, to the chief musician on an instrument of gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your tabernacle, Yahweh Taba'ot. Our Lord of armies, Lord of hosts, my soul faints and even longs for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Begs the question for us today, is that who we are? Is that where we are? To be so zealous to the point of fainting, longing, desirous to come into a time of worship, heart and flesh, crying out for the living God. Now go back to these people seeking to violently force their way into the kingdom. You can only enter into the kingdom by grace, but Christ is pointing out to the Pharisees, look at the people who have tried to get to me so they could touch me. Just doing whatever they thought they had to do to be a part of the kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom today is being properly proclaimed, Jesus would say, and you can only enter into that kingdom by the grace of God, who sends a substitute, the Son of God. Then Jesus says, however, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away. And that's why I call this section absolute infallibility. Now, this is Jesus. Okay. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one stroke of a pen of the law to fail. Now, they're accusing Jesus of twisting the law, leaving some of it out, relaxing the law. Jesus, people do that. You know, people can really use delusion and deception and try to twist the perception that people have of something. Here's what Jesus says. Now you think of the power that it would take to destroy the universe. You think of the power. That's, That's so much easier than for somebody to think that he can take the word of God and remove the slightest stroke of a pen. I want to make that point here. Easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one stroke of a pen of the law to fail. I want to go over here to this. bet ha. Two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. They look similar, but they're not the same. The top half It comes from here to here and from there to there. It's the same. But notice the top one has a slight stroke of a pen. Changes the whole. Now there are other letters like that. Changes the whole letter. The letter changes the whole word. The word could twist or present or pervert an entirely erroneous teaching. Do you see that little stroke of the pen on the top one that is the base of that letter that goes just out beyond that little curvy part? And it doesn't exist in the second one, but it's a, that's a tiny little stroke. You think of the people back then, man, they had, they had these special pens and ink, carefully writing what they wrote, the scribes. It was was so empowered by God, the copyists and so forth. Listen to me. How much power, what kind of force would it take to destroy the universe? There is more power in that little stroke of a pen than there is in whatever it would take to destroy the whole universe. It's easier, Jesus said, for heaven and earth to pass away than for one little stroke of a pen to fail. This is why the Pharisees were bound to collapse. This is why the Word of God is still with us. This is why we still have people in the world who are compelled in the highest and holiest way by the Spirit of God to translate so carefully the Word of God to make sure that not one little piece of a stroke of a pen would fail. God won't let it. It can't. It would be easier for me or for you to destroy the universe than for that little stroke of a pen to disappear or to change. Plenary inspiration, that means that the, the whole of the Bible is right and correct and true. Plenary Inspiration, verbal inspiration, is that every word, every grammatical mark, everything in the Bible, in the original text, is true and correct and inspired by God. Jesus goes beyond that. Jesus says, The path of the stroke of the pen is inspired by God. You can't get any more inspired than that. Now this is a great point that Jesus is making leading to where he wants to take these Pharisees and flip them on their heads. Antinomianism. It means against the nomos is law in the Greek. Anti is again. It means against the law. They were accusing Christ of antinomianism. They were saying, well, he's against the law. He's, he's, he's opposed to the law. Let me say this. Grace, grace from God doesn't mean a thing without the law of God. Can you understand that? We start from the perspective of the demand of God for every one of us. We continue in that through conviction and into conviction as further understanding that there is no way in my life I can completely obey this law. There's no way. Well, that leads you to grace. That's what Paul says. It's a schoolmaster. It's a tutor that leads us to Jesus. It just teaches us how we need Jesus. We have to have the law so that we can understand grace. And we preach grace. So who is against the law? Who really stands against the law? Is it the teacher of self-righteousness? or the preacher of grace. Who really stands against the meaning of the law? Boy, Christ uses a powerful illustration. Everyone putting away his wife and marrying another commits adultery. And he who marrying her, who has been put away from a husband, Commits adultery. That's right out of the book of uh, what Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It is. It is a. It says back over there that if a man finds something, and people translate it shameful, or something that is despicable. Now it can't be adultery because adultery in the law was punished by death. So you, you, you see, you would be violating the law not to kill her if it was adultery. So it's not adultery, it's something else. So in the law, Moses provided this thing that said, okay, you found something shameful in your wife, you must write a letter of divorcement and put her away. Then she goes and she would find another husband and then he might write a letter of divorcement and then she goes back to the original husband who said, well, I'll take you back. Well, he couldn't do that, see. Nope, can't have her back the second time as a law. The Pharisees were well known for their willingness to divorce their wives. Now they took the teacher, there were two teachers in the 50s and leading up to, to the time of the birth of Christ. There were two famous schools of teaching. One was the school of Hillel and the other was Shammai, Shammai. I have it here translated from the, whoops, from, the uh, from the Hebrew, let me lay this down somewhere. This is good. Well, it's pitiful, but it's good. Translated from Hebrew here is part of Rabbi Hillel's list that the Pharisees had adopted as the standard for writing a letter of divorcement. Here we go burning dinner. (laughs) I'm I'm not kidding you. (laughs) The food was not burned but it was lousy. She used too much salt. She would spin so fast in the street that someone saw her knees. Let's see, taking her hair down. <laughs> saying something unkind about her mother-in-law. <laughs> yep, darling, that's it. <laughs> Away you go. Infertility. Giving you giving birth to one daughter after another and no son. finding another woman prettier than her. That would make her unclean in his eyes. Now there are others. I'm going to stop there. You get the point. It's cruel. Shammai said no. No. The funny thing about the Pharisees is Shammai was so rigid about the law that he, he, would not, he would not ever go one way. He just straight, this was his tea, this is his school. Hillel obviously was a little more loose. And the only teaching of Hillel that these Pharisees adopted was the teaching about divorce. Shammai said, nope. Only one reason is adultery. Christ would say that in another gospel, and then Paul would say, and then, of course, desertion. But in the context of what's taught here, here's what Jesus says. Look at, can, you, can you get the picture of this? Looking at the Pharisees in the eye, he said, let me tell you this. He would have quoted the law. Then he would have said, everyone putting away his wife and marrying another. Commits adultery. Can you see the look? There is one thing, listen to me. There is one thing that false religion cannot do. It cannot restrain the flesh. These guys were hypocrites. They fitted it to fit their lifestyle. Looking at them and he says to them, You all have had several divorces in your lives. But let me tell you what. And some of you have taken the first wife back. You follow Shammai in everything but this one thing. But I'm telling you. To be so flippant. About marital love is not the way God designed it. You've committed adultery. Yikes. Christ is saying, Have I relaxed the law? Do you think I've relaxed the law? In your heart, you're an adulterer. God knows your heart. And I've come to save you from who you are. Can't help being born into the human race. It's who we are. Can't stop a thought. Oh, man. Just let somebody run a red light. <coughs> Might have even reached for your Glock. I don't know. (laughs) But Christ has come to redeem us from our fallen nature. This is the whole thing. The Pharisees needed Jesus. Oh, if they would only understand. He would save them. Christ Kept the highest standard of the law. He not only saves us from our behavior and our actions. He saves us from our thoughts. From our nature. And makes us as righteous as he is. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes. Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. According to the Bible, admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus and call on him to save you. God in Christ will save you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we'll sing our hymn of invitation. And I invite you to come. If God calls you to come to Christ, would you come and share that with me? And just by coming to me, share it with others who are here just, Pastor, I I want Jesus to be my Savior. I want to be saved from myself, from the wrath of God. And I know that only Jesus can save me. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian, and God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation. The invitation is open for you as well. We'll take care of all the details of church membership, if that's what God wants in your life. Father God in heaven, bless us now as we come before you. Use this invitation as you see fit in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, okay?